We're in a series on the gospel of John. And we beheld his glory is the title for the series. And we've reached John chapter 1, verse 19. And the title for this morning's teaching is The Religious Confrontation with John and Why It Matters to You and Why It Matters to Me. The text is John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 19 to 28. I sure hope you have a Bible in some form or another and follow along so we can study the text together. John 1, 19 to 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? This is John the Baptist they're addressing. Who are you? And then this strange verse, rather redundant. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So again, and they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 23, he said, John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? You're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor a prophet. Who gives, who gives you the right to do this? Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, that's the Messiah, or Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize you with water, but... Among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Then the Apostle John writes, These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The text hearkens our minds back to something we've already studied in the opening verses of this book where John talks about the Christ. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's the Jews. His own people did not receive him. And now we see that opposition, the early stages of it, the opposition toward Jesus was being exercised by his own people, the Jews. 119, the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. The Jews sent them. And the pushback against the Christ, the Messiah, actually began before Jesus was even on the scene. John the Baptist, the one preparing the way for the Messiah, he's already facing this kind of cross-examination from these leaders from Jerusalem. 
They're not happy with it. It's not, it's not even Jesus yet. It's John the Baptist talking about Jesus, and they won't have it. That simple designation, by the way, the Jews. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, 119. Because unlike the other synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John rarely uses the term Israel or Israelites. But he uses that designation, the Jews, he uses it over 70 times. There's something going on here. And usually he uses this term to convey God's ethnic covenant people as they set themselves against the Messiah. Classic example of John's use of that designation. You can see it in John chapter 7, 10 to 13. But after his brothers had gone to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering. That's a great word, isn't it? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, look at this. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Notice those words. For fear of the Jews... Strange, not, not for fear of Roman soldiers, but fear of the Jewish religious leaders. And our minds just flash back to the Apostle John's words in verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's these same Jews who came to John the Baptist. And this is... The Apostle John's way of signaling right out of the gate that the light really does, 1-5, shine in the darkness. There was opposition to the mission of Jesus even before the person of Jesus is on the scene. That's the kind of darkness. Now let me say right up front why these verses matter to you and to me. In our text today, the darkness gathers around John the Baptist. He's pointing to Jesus. And we're gazing at the prototype. That's what we're studying right now. It relates to you. We're looking at the coming pattern. We're looking at what is to be experienced and expected by all who would bear specific faithful witness to the unique saving work of Christ. Jesus said it. He said, they hated me. They're going to hate you too. You should turn around to a person beside you and just say, that they're going to hate you. you know? They're going to hate you. The truth of those words, it's been spilling over in the history of the church for 2,000 years. All right, let's get into this. Point number one. The kingdom of God requires radical humility on the part of all who would enter it. And humility is not the natural response of the human heart to the call to repentance. 119. This is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's the priests and Levites. Those are the heavyweights. John the Baptist, in his answer, will insinuate somewhat carefully that this delegation from Jerusalem should have known who he was. And the way he does that is, he doesn't just answer saying, no, that's not me, no, that's not me. What he does is he cites Isaiah the prophet, one of their major prophets. He said, Isaiah the prophet predicted me. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's a quote from their prophet. These are the religious leaders who spend all their time studying the texts. This is John the Baptist. He's a little edgy. He doesn't want to be beheaded quite yet. But what he does is he says, uh, I'll tell you who I am. Oh, by the way, it's in Isaiah talking about me. Why haven't they noticed this? But there's another sense in which their approach to John is, is quite reasonable. The apostle John identified this group as composed of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That's in verse 19. And they came because John the Baptist is doing some pretty nervy things. He's preaching alarming sermons. He's predicting the coming of God's wrath to the ungodly. They don't like hearing that. He's calling the people to a rather radical baptism of repentance, which is, which is a picture of the total drowning of all that they had relied on for their happiness, security, all they had relied on for their standing before God. It's all drowning. We're killing all that. We're not relying on any of that anymore. By the way, This isn't what I'm preaching about. This is still what baptism is all about. It's a, there's a, there's a side of, of baptism that we have a hard time digesting. It's, there's a funeral element in baptism. A life producing dying that marks Every person that we baptize, that's the downward action. In a sense, there's nothing chipper or light about baptism. When a person comes into that tank, they're saying, for the rest of my life, my own will does not steer my decisions. I'm not sure we get that. For the rest of my life, my own will does not steer my decisions. I've died to self-rule. I've died to independence. I've died to my own value system. It's a, it's a big thing. And this is what John was doing. Here's the huge problem that hadn't gone unnoticed by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. John was calling the Jews. Get this. John was calling God's people to repentance. (laughs) 
Everyone knew the Gentiles had to repent. Goodness knows those Gentiles. Everyone knew those outside the old covenant. Those people needed to be baptized. There was nothing to investigate there. But what was so wrong with the Jews, the partakers of God's old covenant? What was so wrong that they needed to heed the Baptist's warning and turn from their sins and repent and be baptized? And we see now this whole issue of humility enters the picture. What was wrong with the work of these priests, these Levites, that people had to go out to John the Baptist for repentance and forgiveness? I mean, the priests and the Levites were God's appointed Old Testament leaders to deal with all the sacrifices, all the laws about purification. They were the ones chosen to deal with people's sins. And now John says, you guys, you got to be baptized. you got to repent. Why? Because the old covenant is fading away. The Messiah is here. The one to whom the old covenant pointed. This is a, it's a restart. It's a redo. Everybody has to repent and acknowledge Jesus. All of a sudden, the Levitical establishment in Jerusalem hears of this maniac, John the Baptist. He's in the wilderness, and he's baptizing God's chosen people as though they needed repentance. No wonder the religious authorities are freaking out. You can hear, you can hear the edge in their voice. They try to pin John down. Verse 19, who are you anyway? Which is their way of saying, who in the world are you to be doing what you're doing? Who gave you the right to baptize us? God appointed us. Who appointed you? And we start to see exactly, here's the point. We start to see exactly what God is up to in preparing the way for the Messiah with this rough-edged John the Baptist. How else could God show that that whole old covenant system was about to be folded up and put away with the arrival of God the Son, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world? God calls the very people priests and Levites, whom he had appointed to kill and prepare all those lambs and sacrifices. God calls the leaders of that covenant to leave those offerings behind and let John point them all to Christ, the final redemption. And that's why God uses someone so visibly unqualified someone from outside the sacrificial system, although John's father was a priest, not so John. So these religious leaders, they're forced to look for their forgiveness somewhere apart from those old covenant sacrifices and the Jewish temple. These priests and Levites really have to bow very low if they're going to hear John's message. People still have to bow very low. And so we're seeing something important unfolding right in the first chapter of John's gospel. We're learning one old lesson 
and one newer one. First, we learn people have to confess their sins if they're going to enter Christ's new kingdom. And second, we learn something else. We learn one of the first sins people will have to leave is the pride that would cling to anything else but Jesus for their joy, their security, and eternal life. It's these two lessons in tandem that need to be learned and held together. First, we become aware of transgression. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're sitting here right now in your own conscience. You know, you don't even know your Bible inside out, but uh, you're pretty sure there's things in your life that God wouldn't approve of. We have a conscience. We have God's word. We hear the truth in some way. We know we aren't perfect. And then at some point, God is faithful to open our eyes, to make our sin make our sin offensive enough to us that we want to be rid of it. That has to happen to you. But what then? The second lesson in this passage is we don't have several options to deal with our sin. There aren't several ways out. It's one thing to feel somewhat guilty about some offense. That's a great start. But the process of redemption and restoration can still go awry We must be brought to an end of our own striving, our own resourcing of our future. We must cast all on Christ, the great sin bearer. There's a life lesson here. Many churchgoers, pastors included, many churchgoers feel badly about their lives and yet still go on resisting the call of Christ to come to himself alone. Feeling guilt and bowing before Christ are two different things, not the same thing. You can do the one without ever doing the other. Everybody get what I'm saying there? Point number two. who John the Baptist wasn't and who he was and why it matters to remember both. John 1, 20 to 22. This is a strange collection of phrases. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? First, just consider some of the strange details in the words, and then we'll draw out a point of application. The really interesting thing about John's reply is in verse 20. The priests and the Levites actually, if you look at the words carefully, they never asked if John the Baptist was the Christ, the Messiah. Look at it again. It's in verse 19. All they ask is, who are you? And John the Baptist seems to be jumping to an issue they hadn't really raised yet. And then there's the strangeness of John's answer. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It's hard to get past all that repetition. It's kind of smacks of overkill a little bit. 
You can't miss the Baptist's emphatic denial. It's as though he knows what's behind their question, and he wants to put something to bed immediately. Four times in one answer, four times, he says he's not the Christ. The Levites, the priests, Pharisees, they press him further, 21, 22. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? The questions get all jumbled up in order. Being that these Jewish leaders were convinced that the Messiah wouldn't come until Elijah the prophet returned, it seemed ridiculous to ask if he were the Messiah and then ask him if he were Elijah. Because if Elijah hadn't returned, and obviously he hadn't, then there's no need to ask the other question about being the Messiah. This whole Jewish legend about the return of Elijah, it's a fascinating one. There are still Jews today, today, right now, who are still awaiting the return of Elijah, an empty chair for Elijah to come back. Elijah, as far as anyone on earth knows, was simply transported to heaven. Remember the story? Transported to heaven on chariots of fire. Great movie title. And many Jews to this day keep an empty chair saved for Elijah's return at Passover celebrations. Still. What's more... The Old Testament prophets seem to predict that Elijah would return before the day of the Lord. This is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Levites and the Pharisees, they want to know if perhaps... John the Baptist, is Elijah, returned. And the issue gets kind of complicated by the fact that Jesus seems to contradict John the Baptist. Jesus says John the Baptist was Elijah. It's in Matthew 11. Jesus is the speaker for all the prophets and law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, see? He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. So, Is John the Baptist Elijah, or isn't he? John is right in saying, no, I'm not the same Elijah who left earth in the chariot of fire. That person is not this person standing before you. Fair enough. John speaks the truth. But as Jesus said, the Baptist is the Elijah in the sense of being the final one who would come on the scene to prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. And and the reason that fact matters so much to Jesus is it means there are no other prophetic voices still to come before the Messiah. We're not waiting for anyone else, just Jesus. So in other words, it's categorically wrong to think we're still waiting for the Messiah to come into this world because we're holding an empty chair for Elijah. Both Elijah and the Messiah have already come, 
and everyone needs to bow before the Christ. We're waiting for his second coming, but we're not waiting for his first coming. This ties in with John's wrap-up. Point number three. All people must deal honestly with the truth that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 1, 23 to 27. He, that's John, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then this quote from Isaiah, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, where are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He came unto his own and his own didn't know him, remember? Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Notice what happens, 23 to 25. John identifies himself, as per their request, from the prophet Isaiah. And he does so in such a way that should be convincing to these Jewish leaders. John, John says, I'm, I'm here to cut through all the fog and the red tape that people put up to keep from facing the claim of Christ on their lives. That's what I'm here for. That's who I am. I'm here to draw, he says it, the straightest line between the two points of man's sin and God's Redeemer. That's what I am. That's what I'm doing. And then silence. They don't ask John one word about Isaiah's comments. Not one. They make no mention of one word John just said. They change the subject. They move on. Verse 25, why are you baptizing? And what you're beholding this Sunday morning in 2023, what you're beholding right before your eyes is how stubbornly unprepared our hearts are to renounce self-will and pride and self-justification when God reaches out to us in Jesus Christ. You're looking, these, these religious leaders, they're sent. They know better. They know the prophet Elijah. They've studied Elijah. They know what's going on here. What you're looking at and what still happens you're looking at human caginess when God reveals truth. Human caginess, a way of sidestepping, a way of changing the subject, a way of pretending you just don't really know, a way of pretending there's just not quite enough evidence, a way of saying I'm really not that bad a sinner. Look at people around me, they're worse than I am. A way of saying there's going to be another time. You're looking at human caginess in its most dark state. You're beholding how quickly moral, religious people 
change the subject when the Spirit of God speaks in their conscience or through the Word. You're beholding the habit church people can have of pretending not to hear, and that's deathly habit for me. John is asked why he's baptizing, 25. He responds in a way that specifically draws all the attention to Christ. It's what he does. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. John can't wait to talk about Jesus. He races over his own work. No, that's not me. No, 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 no. I baptize with water, but here's what you need to know. My work is external, with ordinary water, What everyone desperately needs is the work of one coming after me. And again, when John so faithfully points them to Christ, when he points these Jewish leaders beyond the ceremony to the one coming after him, these religious leaders have no more questions about that. They aren't up to facing the truth about themselves. They aren't up to facing their accountability before God the Son. John's trying. John is trying to get these religious leaders, these authorities, he's trying to get them ready for Jesus. And many times, it's hard work getting people ready to listen to Jesus. Here's something to notice in closing. It matters whether or not we allow ourselves to have our hearts opened up to Jesus through the words and efforts of those God uses to advance his work in our minds. It matters. It matters because hard-hearted people won't be any more responsive to Jesus than they are to those who bear witness to his name. Our hearts get set in a certain kind of shape. Consider these words, not now from John the Baptist, but from Jesus himself. The same group of religious leaders, okay? The same people that went to John, now they're talking to Jesus. So the audience is the same, the speaker is different. Here's Jesus speaking. One day Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. Look at chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. Same people. Here we go again. And said to him, have you seen these questions before? Tell us by by what authority? See, if, if you can just prove to us you have the right to, we're ready to listen. Or we'll just drop to our knees and we'll follow you, Jesus, as our Lord. It's just, we need some information. Tell us, by what authority you do these things? Or who it is that gave you this authority? Okay, now Jesus. He answered them, I'll ask you a question. I love the way Jesus does this. Tell me. And Jesus goes to the, he goes to the very text we're studying, okay? I want to ask you a question. The baptism of John, that's what we're studying this morning, right? Is that from heaven 
or from man? Just a minute. We go a little huddle over here. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, so why didn't you believe him? If we say, no, 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 it's just from man, all the people are going to stone us to death. They're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. If you miss everything else this morning, don't, but, but if you do. And Jesus said to them, Here these leaders are, same ones, not ready to bow to Jesus. Cagey as ever. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus. He's standing right in front of them. They want to be clever with Jesus. They're using words and sentences and thoughts to avoid being confronted by Jesus. You can do that. You can sit right now with your mind and plot not listening to what Don is saying about Jesus and your need of him. You can do that. They're using their words, thoughts, sentences. They don't want to be confronted. And you don't see this very often. This is what I wanted to point out. Jesus ends this conversation in a style that's more blunt than we're comfortable with. Verse 8, that's Jesus' way of saying, you guys just don't want to listen. I'm not talking to you anymore. I'm not doing this. You've had every opportunity to respond. You know who I am. You know your sin. You're fiddling around with me. I'm not doing that. Pause, pause right here and think about that. I have to do that. How do you respond when Jesus reveals things way down deep inside that you've kept from reflection and repentance? All of us need to confront the habit of craftiness, of half listening to the voice of the Spirit. That deeply entrenched habit of preserving our own rights against the lordship of Jesus. Consider some of these areas. You go to church, but never change certain parts of your personal life. The person you date, the person you live with. You read the Bible a bit, but not with a regular, humble, prayerful, repentant heart. Gets crowded out by other forms of entertainment and social life. You don't take as seriously the lordship of Jesus, his absolute ownership of everything about your life when you're with non-Christians. And all that could change this morning. Let his word in deeper than the common light hearing that's going to happen all over Canada in churches this morning. Let it put down roots into your soul. Let the Spirit of Jesus grow lasting fruit rather than the, the habits of religious chaff that the wind just keeps blowing away. 
Let the truth of Jesus in. Refuse craftiness with all your might when it comes to the inward voice of the Spirit of the Lord because only the truth can set you free. I just sometimes wonder, just about me. I'm not talking about anybody else. I sometimes wonder when the Lord speaks to me. It's happened a few times. I mentioned one of them. It was years ago. It was at, it was at Hayford's Pastors Conference. Years and years and years and years ago. And a simple issue, and if I told you about it, you would, I know you would think, Pastor John, that's not a big deal. This wasn't an affair, right? It was just, but the Lord had spoken to me about something he wanted changed in my life. And I will never forget when, if I've ever had the Lord speak to me, and, and it was like, Dawn, if I have to talk to you three times about the same issue, then you're just a hearer not a doer. And you couldn't have hurt me more if you stuck a knife in my heart. I want to be a doer when Jesus speaks. And this is John the Baptist. We're studying John the Baptist with people who should have known better, who should have seen the Messiah coming and refuse their proud ways, refuse to change and listen. And that still happens, and it's still deadly, and he can still deliver people from it.